The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Renee Dupont-Adam. Entering the world in Leh, Papua New Guinea, Renee Dupont-Adam had her first flight over the mountain ranges with her dad at the age of three weeks old, and from there, she was hooked. Always being a self-proclaimed daddy's girl, she wanted to follow in his footsteps. Her father, Gordon Dupont, is the inventor of the Dirty Dozen and lovingly known as the father of the Dirty Dozen. As such, Renee takes great pride in being the sister of the Dirty Dozen. The Dirty Dozen is a list of preconditions that can cause any of us to make the errors we never intend to make. They are complacency, distraction, fatigue, pressure, stress, norms, and a lack of communication or knowledge or teamwork or resources or assertiveness or awareness. Renee spent her whole life involved in aviation, from holding a private pilot's license to presenting the first world conference on maintenance errors and their prevention. She has held the position of editor for ground effects for Mars, the Maintenance and Ramp Safety Society, ran PAMEA, the Pacific Aircraft Maintenance Engineers Association, and in 2008, joined her father at System Safety Services, becoming their CEO in 2020. Currently, Renee continues to facilitate workshops all over the world in the interest of furthering safety awareness and helping engineers and companies develop safety nets to lessen the occurrence of making the mistakes they never intend to make. I am so honored to have her join me today. Welcome, Renee. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I'm so excited that you made the time for us today. And all that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? I was born into aviation. I didn't uh, really have a choice, to be honest. Um, I was always a daddy's little girl. And when dad was out at the airport, I wanted to go to the airport. When dad was out in the hangar fixing things, I wanted to be there to be the person handing him the wrenches. So I was born into it. Uh, When he started the Pacific AME Association, I was maybe five years old. And I was there handing him papers and photocopying for him. And it just was a natural transition for me. I wanted to fly before I could drive. Now, the majority of people who get into aviation, I believe it's almost 70% get into aviation through having a father or father figure who's already in the industry. But it nevertheless makes it so special that you were from the very, very beginning so involved in aviation because of your dad. Yeah, it it was special. It was a special relationship that I had with him in airplanes. Uh, When he was principal at BCIT, or at the time it was PBI, Pacific Vocational Institute, every weekend I would go with him in and look at all the planes and want to sit in them and have him tell me how to fly them. And we'd go off to him and I would just hop in his little aero commander for the weekend and we'd fly over to Chilliwack and we'd find a hotel and hang out there and go for pie and fly home. And he'd let me fly the airplane. And I thought I was a big girl and I loved it. It was like being one with the world when you're up in the air. Now, what did your dad think of this in terms of sort of having, if I can say, almost a new sidekick with aviation? I'm not really sure what he thought. You'd have to ask him. But I I think he liked having me around, or at least he pretended to. I think it would be quite special for a parent to have one of their children so 
into their own interests and just someone that you can have not directly mentoring because it's different between a parent and a child, but to have someone as a child so interested in your own interests, I can imagine is quite fun for a lot of parents. Yeah, you know, we have a really good relationship and always have had. So uh, my brother went into automotive, so he was never interested in airplanes. So I think for dad, he was quite happy to have me tag along and want to learn what he was doing. And so we keep mentioning your dad, but your dad by name is Gordon Dupont, who is known as a trailblazer for establishing many different programs concerning human factors and human performance in maintenance and holds the title of the father of the Dirty Dozen. He's been credited with introducing you to the aviation bug, with your first flight being only at a few weeks old. What was it like really, though, to grow up with such an aviation influence, uh, aside from just having the opportunity to spend time with your dad? Honestly, um, as a kid, I couldn't understand why other children weren't so into their parents' lives and what they did. It was just such a natural thing for me as a child. Uh, We used to, my grandparents were over on Vancouver Island, so we'd quite often fly over there for the weekend to visit my grandparents. And when other children told me that they got to take the ferry and there was an arcade on the ferry, I got to say, I couldn't wait to take a ferry. But it was just so natural for me to hop in an airplane and, you know, it took 45 minutes and we were in Duncan visiting the grandparents and we'd fly home where other people had to take a whole weekend to go over to the island to visit people. And it was just natural. I didn't understand that other children didn't have what I had, if that makes any sort of sense. It makes perfect sense because I can think of both of my parents and the different interests they have and thinking, well, this just must be how it is for everyone. Other parents are sharing their interests with kids, whatever they may be, and you as their child will just inherently be interested in it as well. Yes, yes. And, and uh, yeah, no, it was, it was great. You know, I still is with my dad. We have such a great relationship. It's amazing. Now, you mentioned that your brother went into uh, automotive as opposed to aviation. Do you think for him, rather, having the aviation exposure maybe helped him in the decision to go automotive, or is it just... Probably. Probably. He was always one that wanted to follow his own path. And and he's doing very well with what he does. And uh, he's never questioned why I'm taking over the business and not him, because it's just not something he's ever really had an interest in. Now, you are part of establishing both the Pacific Aircraft Maintenance Engineers Association and the Maintenance and Ramp Safety Society. What was it like to help create these industry groups and how important are they to maintaining safety in the aviation community? Well, the Maintenance and Ramp Safety Society, uh, Dad started and I was the editor of their aviation magazine, Ground Effects, from 1997 to probably about 2002. Um, And at that point, Dad left this association because he figured it was somebody else's turn to be president. And the association, unfortunately, is kind of gone downhill since he left. So they don't really have an impact on safety these days. However, the Pacific AME Association is still of course up and running and he started the Vancouver chapter, which is now being rolled into the Canadian um, Federation for Aircraft Maintenance Engineers. But aircraft maintenance engineers have always been, um, shall we say loners? Um, not ones to join clubs or, you know, have that networking that other industries have. Uh, As engineers, they tend to 
be the, by themselves, loners, as we say. So by creating an association that they could come together was so important at that time. And now it's a whole Canadian association, not just separate chapters, which uh, going forward, I mean, they put on a symposium every year with, of course, human factors always on the forefront, uh, different speakers where people can get their, you know, um, updates and licensing and training. And I think it's very important. And it's also such a good way for them to network. Mm -hmm. because we have to learn from the mistakes of others because we're never going to live long enough to do them all ourselves. And especially if you're, to use your term, loner, I think of it more as maybe those that are a bit more extroverted end up in the flashier aviation jobs, and then those are a bit more introverted, uh, self-reflective, end up in some of the support roles that are just as important. And you don't necessarily network if you're sort of on your own and doing something a bit quieter. So having those opportunities and groups like that really does, to, to my understanding, would make a difference with within Huge. maintenance engineers. Huge. So being a part of it from the very beginning is it's it's an honor. You know, um, I still go and speak at most of them. Everybody knows who I am now. They all know uh, that I'm Gordon Dupont's daughter, as well as my name is now actually a name on the forefront as well. And how has that felt for you going from being maybe a legacy to a fully established career in your own right? I'm, I'm not really quite sure how to answer that because I'm still... I mean, you're still well, a legacy. I still feel I'm, I'm just his daughter, if that makes sense. You know, like I'm not the founder, I'm just carrying on the message. So I always feel he's always with me. Wherever I am, you know, we often go training in different parts of the world. And then, of course, we reconvene. And in some places, if it's a bigger workshop, you'll get both of us. But we always come back together and discuss the different things. And, you know, everyone is very impressed that, oh, my God, Gordon Dupont, your father. So I made sure I married not in the in industry. <laughs> yeah, you, we couldn't have sort of two aviation dynasties coming together. It would have just been too much. Too much for the world to take aviation was not ready <laughs> exactly <laughs> so I'm just sort of thinking back to I'm jumping around here but your okay. own maybe vocational background what training did you have I've done everything from of course a pilot's license to um training I've trained actually in bookkeeping I was going to go into accounting and it was really when dad started with human factors training that I decided to forget accounting altogether and join what he was doing because I was so passionate about the Dirty Dozen. And it made such sense to me um, to be able to go forward with him to do that. that that's what I just jumped right in. And I've learned a lot from him over the years. Mm -hmm. There was a time uh, that I really thought I might go into being an aircraft maintenance engineer. However, when I was 10 years old, I had meningitis and it left me completely paralyzed on my right side. So I had to learn how to walk and talk and I still shake on my right side. So being an engineer with a shaky hand probably wouldn't have worked well for me. So I understand what you're saying about the AMES not knowing some of the schematics and things because I never went to school for that. I just learned through my father. Mm -hmm. No, I, I've been very fortunate in the number of different AMEs I know who are we would say maybe more on the chatty side who are very happy and willing to share their knowledge with me 
use it as a teaching opportunity as opposed to sort of say, oh, look at the student pilot that can't even tell you what this part is. And I, I'm very appreciative of any maintenance engineer that makes time for an inquiring mind. Well, honestly, I find most maintenance engineers are very humble people. Mm-hmm. And they're quite happy to share their knowledge with anybody. Mm-hmm. Pilots, they're a little different. <laughs> Pilots will tell you what you don't need to know without exactly. any prompting. <laughs> yes, they will. Very different. And uh, my sort of go-to trick, if we'll call it with maintenance engineers, has always been to show up with a carafe of coffee and a dozen donuts. Yes, I did the same thing. <laughs> You're instantly welcome in a maintenance shop if you just start with being yes. very appreciative, very humble, and then you can ask your questions and no one gives you a hard time. Yeah, know the trick now. <laughs> I've, yeah, just giving it away here. I always bring Timbits to every class. It's, it seems like the right thing to do. Yeah, totally. But pilots, they want more than just the donuts. They want the donuts. They want to know when they're going for their next upgrade. They want to know everything. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny because we've taught at different conventions like uh, the Helicopter Association International being one of the many conferences we teach at. And we'll have a pilot uh, human factors course as well as an, an aircraft maintenance engineer one going on at the same time. And dad always says, so you're taking the pilots? Uh, no, you can have them. <laughs> I'll take the engineers. Now, as you mentioned, yeah, so you would have two different courses running in tandem, one for maintenance engineers, one for pilots. What are the major differences between those two courses? The case studies. You know, when we were teaching more of a pilot-based one, the case studies are more geared towards a pilot error versus a maintenance error. That's really the only difference because the 12 preconditions for the dirty dozen are still the same. They're still both human. Mm -hmm. right? So those are the major difference. But the difference is also the participants. I find engineers are much more susceptible to wanting to learn or pilots are figuring, ah, oh, we're on the clock. Okay, come on, come on, hurry up. Let's go, let's go. They're more in a hurry and want out. Where engineers are more laid back and want to hear things and they don't care how long it takes to learn something. Interesting. I Not that have... I'm putting pilots down the least because I am one or I was one. I let my license lapse, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that's an interesting observation. I know it wasn't until I started to meet different maintenance engineers that I was sort of privy to the idea of the dirty dozen. That wasn't something that I was taught from a flying perspective. Yeah. We had different ways that we approached human factors, illusions, hazardous attitudes, the I'm safe checklist. So it's very interesting to me to hear the dirty dozen being shared in a piloting context as well. Yes. But pilots are still humans too, and they can still make errors as well as engineers. Mm -hmm. As long as there is a human operator, there is a human factor. Exactly. Now, the groups that you've helped establish and the many others that you are a part of have created more space within aviation to talk about industry issues, particularly safety and human factors. They've also created new ways to spread information to keep all of us safe. How important is networking to human performance and safety? Well, networking is key because we can't, as I mentioned earlier, we can't make all make the mistakes, right? We don't, we're not going to live long enough to do that. So by hearing from other people, some of the human factors that they've experienced, we learn from those, um, you know, without having to have the accident. And that is huge in this industry. Mm -hmm. And it's, 
beyond just a case study. It can even be, I think, just sort of hanger talk of sharing yes. stories with other pilots yes. and maintenance engineers. I, I, that's why I'm so passionate about what I do. When you get a class talking about their different experiences, what they've done and what they've learned from it, and somebody may have a suggestion of what somebody else can do, it is fantastic. When people can walk out of your workshop feeling that they've learned something, even if it's just one little tidbit of information, it's fantastic. Gordon and I don't have all the answers. So somebody in the classroom just might. And that's, that's huge. And I guess that's what I was going to ask, the idea that you have case studies prepared for the course that day, but do you have it sometimes where someone within the group might present a case that maybe becomes more of a focal point for that day? Um, not usually, but we do have people, uh, especially when we teach a part three uh, workshop, we ask people to come to class with a case study or with an experience that concerns a one of the dirty dozen and share it amongst their team. And then they choose one to share amongst the whole entire classroom. And then we will all talk about it, right? And it's their personal experiences. And I think that is huge. Your own personal experiences or that of someone that's within the course personal. with you yeah. will maybe resonate more than just a case study that you've heard different times used. Or many times over and over and over again, right? Since 1993, System Safety Services has been creating training resources, conducting workshops, and consulting with the aviation community. How did this group come about, and what are the ways it has influenced you personally? How did it come about? Well, my father originally, uh, well, he worked for the Transportation Safety Board, of course, uh, looking at all the accidents, and he said, you know, many of the accidents were due to the human, right? But there was no training for maintenance for human. Right. And then, uh, of course, the Dryden accident happened in the 80s. And from that, uh, they came out with 200 recommendations. And one of those recommendations was to take human factors training or CRM at that time from the pilot and take it down to the flight attendant, the flight crew and maintenance. So Transport Canada at that point hired my father to come up with some sort of CRM training for maintenance. And that's how human factors training came to be. So uh, when he left the government, he revamped the workshop and then we've trained it in our company since 1993. I joined dad in 2005 as a co-facilitator with him. And it was only January of last year that he ha finally handed me the reins and he now works for me. <laughs> now, what was it like to have gone from seeing this idea starting with transportation safety board recommendation, move ultimately into its own fully fledged company. And now to find yourself as the CEO, you've seen the entire lifespan of this idea, now an organization. I find it amazing because everywhere, every hangar I've ever gone to or 90% at least have the dirty dozen hanging up. You know, most people in that are especially the AMEs um, know what the dirty dozen are. You know, and you mentioned the name Gordon DuPont or System Safety Services. They know who you are. And that, to me, still surprises me. Uh, what was I? I was in Atlanta Airport uh, getting a connecting flight in Atlanta. And some guy came running up to me and he said, Mrs. DuPont. I went, Mrs. DuPont. Nobody calls me that. Now married, so my last name isn't DuPont. But at that time, and he's, he said, Mrs. DuPont. I was like, hello. And he goes, yeah, you taught me human factors in Singapore. Oh, Okay. 
you know, and to remember me. And he said, oh, you don't remember me. I said, honestly, I only remember the troublemakers <laughs> because we, there's a lot of people that come and go through our, my lifespan through the workshops. And to have somebody still holding on and remember who I am and taking something from that is amazing. So to see it go from, I was working at the Pacific AME Association when dad developed uh, the Human Factors Performance Maintenance Workshop through Transport Canada. And I used to go and have lunch with him and we talk about it and to see that concept to the full of what it is today and knowing that the whole world knows about it now and uses it, it's such an honor. Like it just feels like an honor to be part of that legacy. I can imagine there would just be as you said, the honor to it. But I know that uh, different people that work within the TSV can sometimes find it challenging that the recommendations that you make not do not necessarily come to fruition in terms of a new regulation or new implemented safety practice. So for it to be a recommendation that has had a full-fledged life beyond that, that yeah. on its own must just be incredibly rewarding. Incredibly so, yes. You know, I, I find that I am not worthy sometimes. I don't think I'm worthy of this, this amazing, um, I don't know what the word is, uh, going, this transformation. It's almost a transformation in the aviation industry with the Dirty Dozen. You know, they've transformed what used to be, people used to say, okay, pilot error, done. You know, that's why the plane crashed. Well, yes, it was the pilot that made the final decision. But then now they're starting to look back at the root causes and what actually happened and what happened to that aircraft maintenance engineer to make him make the decision to not tighten that fuel line, right? So to look into something deeper, it's, it's just such a huge thing to know that the whole world is now practicing this because of my dad. And you. Well, thank you. And me. <laughs> now, the Dirty Dozen, Obviously, there are 12. Is there one in particular that you find maybe catches people off guard when they're first introduced to the idea? No, I wouldn't say there's one in particular. I mean, I think nowadays, especially uh, with mental illness being such a forefront now, people are starting to really recognize it. We spend a lot more time on stress or PTSD because there's a lot of people that suffer from PTSD for many different reasons, whether it be coming back from a war, whether it be something that happened at work, or you know, perhaps something happened and you ended up killing somebody, um, you know, all those reasons. So I think the biggest one is stress has gone from being a half an hour little blah, 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 to now we spend a good hour and a half discussing stress and PTSD because I think it's so important, especially now with COVID happening, people are coming back to work and they have PTSD from COVID. Uh, there's a lot more mental illness from what has happened in this world. And I think addressing that now is way more important than it was when we first started. So in addition to the way we discuss mental wellness and stress within human factors, what other notable changes have there been in the way that human factors and human performance training has changed in terms of its presentation? You know, honestly, I would say it hasn't changed a whole lot. I mean, obviously, some of the, the case studies may be updated. Um, it's more the length that we spend on fatigue and stress because it has come to the forefront that those two are the major two of the dirty dozen. Right? We say there's four big ones, uh, and those stress and fatigue we spend the most time on. Because fatigue 
tends to play a great role in people's wellness as well, right? Uh, when you're really super tired, you start developing that don't care attitude. And that's certainly not what a, a pilot needs or an aircraft maintenance engineer to not care. So we, we spend more time on that now than we did when we originally developed uh, human factors training. And unfortunately, there's a lot more online training, especially during COVID. I mean, I understand during this time of the world that getting people together is not an option. So there's a lot more online training, but I'm finding, you know, doing the online training, it takes a lot of the human out of the workshop. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when you get 12 people on a computer screen, they're not as likely to share their experiences as they are when they're together in a workshop. So I'm really looking forward to the day that we can all get back together and actually put the human back into human performance and maintenance. There has just been an unbelievable learning curve in terms of presenting information, academic work, even just regular business work Yes, over Zoom and different video platforms. And it, it has entirely changed the way that you maybe interact with your coworkers, the other people yes. on the call. It has been a very big learning curve. And I think yes. exactly as you said, having a group of people come together, maybe from all different places, not necessarily in a room or going through a course experience in classroom together, it would definitely change how much you're maybe willing to share or interact with the other people on that course. Yes. And you never know, you know, often we'll teach a workshop and people say, oh, I don't have a webcam. So you never know if they're actually there or if they're off, you know, tending to their cat or dog or, you know, watching a TV in the other room and then they just come back on for a few minutes. You, you know, by not being able to see these people, you don't know where they are. But when you're in a room together, then they're more interactive. They know you're, they pay more attention. It's just been a totally different way of training, especially human factors online. And I know it still checks the box to say that, yes, this person's done their human factors training, so let's check the box. But to me, human factors training is more than just checking a box. Mm -hmm. You know, so for companies that just want to check a box, then I guess it works perfect. But for me, as an instructor of human factors and one of the you know, pioneers in this industry for human factors, it's, it's sad for me. I find it very sad that people are not getting what they should out of the workshop. Mm -hmm. There's not the same level of engagement yes. that you previously saw. And from an instructional element or perspective, yes. you are, you're speaking to the void sometimes. Yes. And yes, it's, it's less expensive. You know, so, you know, um, for us going overseas, like we've talked for many companies overseas, Aer Lingus being, I think, one of the last ones prior to COVID. So, yes, it's less expensive for them to all click online instead of paying for their, our expenses to come there. But they don't learn the same way. It's, a, it's an unfortunate part of it. And there's a lot of training that's great online. Mm -hmm. but human factors needs humans. Now... With mental wellness becoming a larger issue in recent years and over the course of the pandemic, um, but particularly so as we grapple with the fallout of different incidents, notably the German wings crash, yes. how has the recognition of mental health and wellness impacted human factors training overall, maybe beyond just increasing the time focused on that? 
Uh, you know, honestly, for us, that has been the major issue. We've just um, been able to increase our time and we've really brought more, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, PTSD and trying to discuss mental health amongst the workshop or the participants, you know, and it's great when somebody can come forward in a workshop and tell you about their mental health. And I find as the years go on, there are more people willing to talk about it. You know, when you think back to 2005, nobody talked about it. You know, you could bring it up in a workshop and that was dead silence. For now, if you bring it up in a workshop, somebody will usually speak to the point. Say, yeah, okay, that was me. This happened to me, you know, and it's a lot more common for people to go outside their comfort zone and seek professional help compared to what it was, especially with all the incidents lately that have happened with mental health. Mm -hmm. I know the Ontario AME Association has been particularly great in terms of promoting yes. mental health and wellness, and that has been Stuart McCauley doing a lot yes. of speaking on that. Stuart's great. Uh, I've shared the uh, stage with him many a times, and I think he's a fantastic promoter for mental health. He was also very, very nice, and the fact that he made time for us was also very special. He's a good guy. He was a very nice man. Now, what are some activities you enjoy outside of aviation? Well, um, I'm a runner. Uh, I've ran one full marathon and 44 half marathons, numerous 10K races and 5K races. Uh, yeah, so that's probably one of my biggest passions. I, I love running. Unfortunately, as I'm getting older, my knees aren't as happy as they used to be. So I think I'm not going to ever beat my personal best anymore, but I still enjoy getting out and going for a run. It, it's again, that's part of mental health. I think for me, it allows me to get out, put my heavy metal music on and just, just clear my head and go for a run. And I feel like a whole new person when I'm home sweating. <laughs> so that's my biggest passion and cooking. I love to cook. I could spend days in my kitchen. Unfortunately, my husband says he's going to get fat if I keep, keep this up. <laughs> So yeah, cooking and running are my two, and I do like heavy metal music. A great combination. It's an interesting one anyway. But I, I don't know, there's something about uh, heavy metal that just allows me to get my aggression out in a positive manner. That's the way I look at it, by banging one's head. If it's healthy and it works, power to you. Oh, I love it. Now, this might seem like a bit of an odd question to ask because just in hearing how you speak about your dad, it's clear to me that you admire him, but who is someone in aviation you admire maybe outside of your dad? Well, my godfather was Ferdy Vachon, uh, who was a uh, aircraft maintenance engineer. He was born in Quebec, I believe 1912. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2005. Um, he was a fantastic pioneer in aviation. He actually, him and his four brothers created the uh, dialysis machine for kidneys failure. Um, my father hired him on a Pacific Vocational Institute when he was 70, even though the rules said that my dad couldn't hire anybody that was over 65. So he just left the age category blank. And Ferdy went on to teach till he was 77. And every single year that he taught, he won the Teacher of the Year Award. He was just a fantastic, caring individual, and I, I miss him. I miss him a lot, and I would have to say he had a great influence on me. 
how lucky you are to have had so many wonderful influences in oh. your life. Oh yeah, everybody in aviation were my uncles growing up. You know, uh, anybody dad knew, they were all my uncles. So yeah, I was very lucky that way. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career? You know, it's hard to, to find just one. I've had so many. Um, one of them was when we went to Singapore, we taught at the ATC College for Aviation. And the students were just so different from what they are here. Here, they can't wait to get out, you know, four o'clock. Okay, they're looking at the clocks. Okay, it's 3.30, lady, hurry up. But in Singapore, four o'clock came around and they would be like, do you have anything else you can teach us? We can stay. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, sure, we'll come up. They just couldn't get enough. They wanted to dive in further and further into human factors and they wanted to get to the bottom of it. And it was just such a different culture than it is here. So I would say that would be one of my favorite memories. And at the end of the workshop, we gave them all FOD posters or foreign object damage posters that we had created. And they, want, they lined up in a row and asked us to sign them. Never had that happen before. So that's a good memory. Um, we taught in St. Martin and every single person in our workshop brought us presents. I, I had a lot of beer at the end of that workshop and I don't even drink it. So that was interesting. <laughs> Um, but they were more of a show up eight o'clock when we say a starting time. It was more of a suggestion more than a start time. <laughs> they were the don't worry, be happy place. <laughs> so that was a, that was a good memory. Um, again, Ireland, I, I absolutely loved the students in, in Dublin. They were just very kind, very wanting to learn where I find North America is not as like them. Um, anybody overseas has this passion that oh my god you came all the way from Canada to teach us something so do you have anything else like teach us as much as you possibly can while you're here you know they all wanted to take us out for dinner they all wanted to learn more it was really it's been a really rewarding experience for me being able to travel and meet different cultures in the aviation industry uh, Alaska being one of them I had a woman in my class in Alaska who was very quiet you know, when you asked her a question, she would answer, but she wasn't one to ever volunteer anything. And at the end of the workshop, she asked if I could go out with her for a cup of coffee. So, of course, I said, oh, by all means, you know. So we went for coffee and she says, you know, um, I recently lost my father and in an aviation accident. And she said, and I'm having a hard time working in aviation since that accident has occurred. And we had a really good talk and we still email each other and she's doing great today. So. Being able to help people and knowing that what I do for a living has helped somebody's life, it's been so rewarding and just such great memories. And then there's the fun I have with my father. You know, there's nothing that replaces that in this whole world. We were at the HAI or the Helicopter Association International in 2020, which was in Anaheim. And in between our workshop and the actual symposium starting, there was a day. So dad and I went to Disneyland. And we had so much fun. So those are memories that I will take with me long after he's gone that I'll never be able to replace. So those are probably my favorite aviation memories with him. All of those sound like they would be hard to top, but I think having to autograph FOD posters, like true rock stars, <laughs> sounds uh, very fun. Just tell my husband I got to sign all these posters. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was great. 
Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? You know, well, I do have a Facebook page. I gotta be honest, don't use it very often. So emailing me is probably the easiest way to get in contact with me or going onto our website. You can find my email on that system safety system safety.com. There's also uh, years and years and years of information and newsletters on human factors. So, you know, I invite anybody to go onto our website, anything you want to use or can use great for uh, hangar talks, you know, just to grab an article and read it to, to your guys. That's great. Or any questions or anything we can do to help you. We're always there to help. We will be sure to have all those links in the episode description for our listeners. Renee Dupont, Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. It was very nice to meet you. And thanks for having me today. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, The Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. Thank you.